Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. We have a lot of things to go through today. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson, and I am happy, as always, to be joined by the show's co-host and producer, Joe Armstrong. Today, we're going to get you up to date on the latest legal and political news. First, we're going to talk about President Biden announcing measures to address gun violence in America, which he appropriately described as an epidemic. Then we're going to talk about the trial of former officer Derek Chauvin for the killing of George Floyd, update you on what's happened so far in that trial and how it seems to be going. Uh, Next, another update, the latest news regarding the curious case of Congressman Matt Gates and the allegations against him and his responses. And finally, we're going to talk about the latest developments in former Congresswoman Katie Hill's so-called revenge porn case and what just happened in court this week and what it might mean for the future. Co-host and producer Joe Armstrong, welcome. Let's start at the beginning Uh, What did President Biden just announce with respect to gun control? Thank you, Jessica. Always happy to be here. President Biden announced on Thursday he would take executive action on some gun control measures after bipartisan efforts to do so have failed over the last several years. Since Biden's presentation, there was yet another shooting, this time in Byron, Texas, where a gunman killed one person and injured four others. So our hearts go out to those people as well. Flanked by Vice President Kamala Harris and new Attorney General Merrick Garland in the Rose Garden outside the White House, Biden said, quote, gun violence in this country is an epidemic and it is an international embarrassment. And he also said, uh, getting head of the inevitable opposition, quote, the idea is just bizarre to suggest that some of the things we are recommending is contrary to the Constitution. While he was there, he also nominated gun control advocate David Chipman to lead the ATF. That's the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives. Biden's stated goal is to reduce gun violence in general, including from suicide and domestic violence. But it is unclear what steps he is willing to take to attempt to curtail the rise in mass shootings, which we've all noticed has risen as the country incrementally begins to open as the coronavirus pandemic wanes. How did Biden say he will do that? by directing the Department of Justice to create new rules that will curtail the proliferation of what's called ghost guns. And what are ghost guns, Jessica? Ghost guns are guns that are assembled from parts bought online on the internet. And as such, they have no serial numbers like a gun that would be produced by Colt or another manufacturer. He also asked Department of Justice to give examples of red flag laws for states to use. Now, these laws would allow family members or the police to block people temporarily from obtaining firearms if they present a danger to themselves or others. He also asked for a new Department of Justice report on the trafficking of firearms. The last one noted here was 21 years ago, so that could stand to be updated. He also said, quote, the job of any president is to protect the American people, whether Congress acts or not. Biden said, I'm going to use all the resources at my disposal to keep the American people safe from gun violence, but there is much more that Congress can do to help that effort, pushing the ball into their court a little bit as well. Now, with Second Amendment defenders opposed to any action whatsoever, how far do you think Biden will take these efforts, Jessica? And how far can he take them, legally speaking? You know, we're working on a more comprehensive episode about gun control legislation, but give me your first impressions here. 
Well, the first question, Joe, that you asked is how far will he take this? How much will he push? And it's not clear how much political capital he wants to spend on this. I think we all know that he has about two years at this point, a little less, before the midterms to really try and get as much as he possibly can done before potentially um, the balance of power in our country shifts. And so I don't know how hard he's going to push, how hard he's going to push the gas in terms of legislation. But I think he's absolutely correct to say that this is um, this is a humanitarian crisis, and there just are no two ways about it. Now, you asked me, is this legal? I think, legally speaking, there's a couple of questions. One, we don't know exactly what this executive order is going to look like. We don't know if it will just be model rules for states, if it will be guidance, if it will be binding. So a lot of the legal issues will really be based on, I hate to say this, but the devil will be in the details in terms of whether or not this is suggestive or mandatory. A couple things to think about, of course, is that our current Supreme Court is very much uh, pro, I'm loath to say pro Second Amendment, Joe, because I think you can be in favor of the Second Amendment without an irrationally broad reading of the Second Amendment, which is what I believe the current court may espouse. So that's kind of legal issue number one. Legal issue number two, there are, of course, problems trying to implement mandatory change through an executive order. And legislation just stands on stronger footing. We've talked about this in an analogous situation when it comes to immigration. So what we really need is legislation. Polls indicate that that's what a majority of Americans want. And that will, again, be on a stronger legal ground. Now, I did notice, Joe, that you said, you know, President Biden said this is a, quote, international embarrassment. And I thought it was worth it just for a moment to think about what other countries have done by comparison. Uh, In Britain, 1997, a gunman killed 16 children and their teacher. In Scotland, the 1997 Firearms Act ends up restricting ownership of almost all handguns. Australia, a year earlier, 1996, a gunman kills 35 people uh, using a legally purchased AR-15, a semi-automatic rifle. The Australian government coordinates with states to severely restrict the ownership of automatic and semi-automatic guns. Within a year, the government bought back 650,000 firearms. New Zealand, March 2019, a gunman kills 51 Muslim worshippers. Within a day, within less than 24 hours, the New Zealand prime minister says that the country would change its gun laws. It did change its gun laws. Among other things, they instituted a gun buyback program and restrictions on semi-automatic weapons. New Zealand's prime minister told a CNN reporter, quote, Australia experienced a massacre and changed their laws. New Zealand had its experience and changed its laws. To be honest with you, I don't understand the United States. What happened in Canada? A very similar story. They experienced a massacre. They changed their laws. What happened in America? We experienced a massacre, and then we experienced a massacre, and then we experienced a massacre, and we do not change our laws. And, Joe, I just don't even know... um, what to add to that other than to say uh, the time was before we started mowing down 
um, adults and children in schools. And the time has passed. And it will be, I think, one of the biggest tests of the Biden administration to see if he can implement um, gun control. And if he can't, this will be one of the big things we have to think about when we think about the Senate and the fact that uh, it is by definition anti-majoritarian and that the filibuster is an anti-majoritarian principle on top of an anti-majoritarian institution. And there's just no good way to transition from that. But we do want to continue to inform you about other legal and political news. So now let's talk about the trial of former officer Derek Chauvin in the death of George Floyd. So Officer Chauvin is on trial for second and third degree murder and second degree manslaughter, again, in the death of George Floyd. Chauvin kneeled on top of Floyd's neck for approximately nine minutes and Floyd died. What are the big legal questions in the case? Number one, did Chauvin use excessive force? Number two, were Chauvin's actions the substantial cause of Floyd's death? This is why we're going to hear a lot about a lot more about medical expert testimony. Uh, did George Floyd's pre-existing conditions and or drugs in his system uh, cause his death, not Officer Chauvin's knee in his neck? Uh, and then third, can the prosecution prove these things beyond a reasonable doubt? Uh, Joe, you're going to update us on what the witnesses said, but I do want to be clear that the prosecution and the defense have very, very different roles here. So the prosecution, of course, has to build this case from the ground up. They have to start from scratch, and they have to build their case beyond a reasonable doubt. The defense has a very, very different role, which is, again, just to try and convince one juror that they do have a reasonable doubt and that it is not, in fact, proper to convict Chauvin of either second or third degree murder or second degree manslaughter. And so what's happening right now is that the prosecution is putting on its case, and these are all the prosecution witnesses. The defense doesn't have to put on its own case. Its case can really be cross-examining the prosecution's witnesses and opening and closing statements. Now, I expect that the defense will put on its own case, but while we're watching these proceedings unfold, it is important to remember that the defense doesn't have to do anything other than try and plant seeds of doubt. And I'm not trying to say that's an easy job. I'm saying, legally speaking, very different thresholds here. So, Joe, should we talk about some of the witnesses? I think you're going to talk about some of the non-expert witnesses first. Yeah, let's jump in with the non-expert witnesses. We'll move on to the other types after this. Now, keep in mind, there were many, many, many witnesses that might be called for this. So far, these are the non-expert ones we'll talk about. There is a bystander. His name is Donald Williams II, and he testified that the arrest procedure was, his words, quote, torture. He said that he called 911 to report the incident with George Floyd because he believed that he had, quote, witnessed a murder. Pretty strong words there. Uh, one of the underage witnesses, so we have no name for this witness, took the video that most people have seen. And if you've seen a video, it's likely that one. It's widely available and it's very, very harrowing. 
said that Floyd was, quote, terrified, scared, begging for his life and saying that I can't breathe. That turned into a hashtag. And we've seen it spray painted and stickered all over buildings since last summer. They also said that Chauvin, quote, just stared at us with this cold look. Now, uh, a little closer to Floyd's life, George Floyd's girlfriend, her name Courtney Ross, testified that Floyd had struggled with an opioid addiction and had initially used the drugs to treat back pain. She also said that he had once been hospitalized for an overdose and was in the car with a supplier at the time of his arrest. One thing worthy of note here is that some notable people in law enforcement are testifying against a former officer Chauvin, which is a break from the norm. That thin blue line we always hear about is getting thinner in this particular case, at least. Now, Jessica, can you tell us a little bit more how about that's playing out in terms of law enforcement? Joe, that's right. We've had a number of law enforcement officers say, no, this is not right. This is excessive force. And look, this is pretty damning for the defense. A lot of times what you see is that police officers will kind of rally together and the so-called you know, blue line that they won't cross that. They won't testify against each other. Now, I think that we tend to overplay that, that that actually doesn't happen as much as we think. But this case is notable. Let's think about Lieutenant Richard Zimmerman, a homicide investigator who said that Chauvin kneeling on Floyd's neck for an extended period of time was, quote, totally unnecessary, and that such a move, quote, can kill. Zimmerman also testified about something which is really important when we think about excessive force, which is that even if force is appropriate in the beginning of an encounter, that you need to continue to analyze whether or not that level of force is still appropriate as you, for instance, keep going in time. And George Floyd became less and less animated. Obviously, he said, I couldn't breathe. He wasn't moving as much. His breathing changed. His speech changed. And so what we've seen from the law enforcement officers is basically two things. One, you didn't need to use this position, this technique in the first place. And two, even if you did, and this is just my interpretation, but even if you did, you needed to stop much sooner. Who else did we hear from? Inspector Katie Blackwell, who was the commander of the training division at the time of Floyd's death. She testified that the policy was to train officers to use their arms to carry out a neck restraint on a suspect instead of using the knee like Chauvin did. Again, this goes to the idea of from the beginning of what we saw, that Chauvin was not using a proper technique, that he should not have used this position. The chief of the Minnesota Police Department testifying that Chauvin violated department policy, training, and ethics. I thought this was really damning, listening to him talk about the fact that this is against what we teach, and it's also just not what you should do as a human being. She sa he said that when Floyd ceased resisting, it w and was, quote, no longer responsive and motionless, that Chauvin absolutely should have provided care, that Chauvin should have de-escalated the situation. We saw a number of different officers echoing these sentiments. And so, Joe, I know you're going to talk to us about this third bucket of testimony from medical professionals. 
Yes, Jessica, there were a number of medical professionals that took the stand in the last several days. The first, uh, Genevieve Hansen, she's an off-duty emergency medical technician and a certified firefighter. She just happened to be there. She witnessed Floyd's condition and wanted to treat Floyd. Without, she didn't have identification on her, but she was not allowed to do so. She said that she saw Floyd had, quote, an altered state of consciousness and he was not responding to the painful stimuli of Chauvin's knee on his neck. She, her goal there was to check Floyd for consciousness and start chest compressions, you know, CPR, as well as render other medical attention. She was denied access to Floyd by the police. Uh, there were two paramedics there. Uh, Seth Bravender and Derek Smith, forgive any mispronunciations there, stated that when they arrived at the scene, they did not see signs of breathing or movement by George Floyd and thought that he was already dead. Once they had been allowed access to Floyd, they did not find a pulse and efforts to resuscitate Floyd failed. Now, the doctor who pronounced Floyd dead, Dr. Branford Langenfield, testified that for any person whose heart had stopped, like Floyd, the chance of survival decreases by 10 to 15 percent every minute that CPR is not attempted. And as we mentioned before, CPR was not allowed to be performed on George Floyd. So, Jessica, as we said, I know you've been watching this trial. Do you have any general observations from a legal perspective? Have there been any curveballs or unexpected details? And just in general, what do you think about how the trial is proceeding? I think the prosecution has put on a very good case. They've done a couple things. One, again, they're trying to prove Chauvin did use excessive force. It was the substantial cause of Floyd's death, and we can show this beyond a reasonable doubt. The other thing that the prosecution has done is they've brought up the quote-unquote bad facts. They've acknowledged openly, yes, George Floyd had drugs in his system, which means that there won't be likely big surprises that the defense has. It won't be like... The prosecution tried to hide something from the jury. And again, a lot of this is about the prosecution trying to show the jury, you can trust yourself when you saw that video, and you can trust us. We're not hiding evidence. We're not hiding key bits of information. So I think at this point, the prosecution has been very effective. The Think about those non-expert witnesses and how deeply emotional their testimony was, how a lot of them talked about survivor's guilt. I mean, it was just on a human level, very difficult to watch. Again, think about the other law enforcement officers saying this is not what we're trained to do. And then think about the expert medical testimony. I think a lot of this might come down to medical testimony and whether or not the jury is convinced that Officer Chauvin's knee on George Floyd's neck was the substantial cause of his death. Right now, again, hard to say anything other than that the prosecution is really doing a very good job here. And everyone, we will keep you updated as this trial progresses. And let's move on to a different story that's been a big story. Now, the Chauvin trial that's been going on for just a week and a half, but the George Floyd story goes all the way back to last year, not quite a year ago. A newer story, uh, Matt Gates. How about that Matt Gates, Jessica? Give us the latest on his trial with his troubles with crossing, potentially at least crossing state lines with underage girls and sex and uh, other salacious things. Whoever thought that having a discussion about a member of Congress who might be under federal investigation for sex trafficking would be the breath of fresh air that we need. But we've just talked about gun control. We've talked about the death of George Floyd. I mean, we've talked about some really serious issues so far. So Matt Gates is our, I, I mean, I don't mean to 
make light of the situation, but it's our moment to take a breath in a way. So last week, we talked about Congressman Matt Gates, who, again, is allegedly under federal investigation for sex trafficking. Specifically, Gates is supposedly under investigation for traveling across state lines with women with whom he induced to have sex with him by offering a thing of value. I'm very, very much paraphrasing that federal statute there. I just want to make clear for everybody, this is general and high level. Gates denied the claims and he said, in fact, no, I didn't do any of that. And my family are the subject of an extortion plot by former government officials and, in fact, named one of those officials. Now, this is a surreal story on so many levels, and there have been some new developments just in the last few days since we talked about this. Can you fill us in on what happened? I would love to, Jessica. Yeah, it is a serious story, but it, it's, it's nothing else. It's a change of pace. Now, we've got some details, as I said, and the case has been indeed been taking a slight turn towards the bizarre. CBS News has reported that Gates took a trip to the Bahamas with a marijuana entrepreneur named Jason Pirazzolo, I think is how you pronounce that. Good Irish name. Sometime around late 2018 or early 2019. Now, Pirazzolo is alleged to have paid for Gates' travel expenses, accommodation, and, surprise, surprise, female escorts. Investigators are trying to determine if the escorts traveled across state lines or perhaps international borders, as well as if the travel and escorts were a sort of quid pro quo for political access to Gates. CBS News also said that Pizzarolo donated $1,000 to Gates' campaign in March 2016 and May of 2017. It is known that Gates has advocated for legalizing marijuana and was one of only five House Republicans to vote for the Marijuana Opportunity Reinvestment and Expungement Act, that was the Moore Act, which passed 228 to 164 not so long ago. At the time, Gates tried to convince other Republicans to change their minds. Now, some people are standing with Gates and some are looking to save themselves. After CNN reported that Gates had approached Trump administration officials about a preemptive pardon at the end of Trump's term, we did an episode about those sorts of pardons. Trump himself released a statement saying, quote, Congressman Matt Gates has never asked me for a pardon. It must also be remembered that he has totally denied the accusations against him. That may be a dodge. I don't know. Time will tell there. Now, on Thursday of this week, Gates' office released a statement purportedly from the women of the office of U.S. Congressman Matt Gates, which stated that, quote, after the shocking allegations last week in the press, we, the women of Congressman Matt Gates's office, feel morally obligated to speak out. They also said in this statement, during Congressman Gates's time in office, we have been behind the scenes every step of the way. We have staffed his meetings, we have planned his events, we have traveled with him, and we have tracked his schedule on every occasion. He has treated each and every one of us with respect. Thus, we uniformly reject those allegations as false, unquote there. Now, there's a big catch here. This is a detail that I think is very, very important to that statement. No specific women were named and no one signed that statement. So make what you will of that. But then... Jessica, the plot thickened yet again on Thursday when the news broke that a former associate of Gates, Joel Greenberg, he's wrapped up in the story and has been since the beginning, is attempting to strike a plea deal with investigators that would allow him to possibly serve as a witness in the investigation of Gates. 
Greenberg himself is also under investigation by federal prosecutors for paying underage girls for sex. And in August of 2020, he was charged with sex trafficking involving a girl between the ages of 14 and 17. And if that's not enough, Greenberg has also been charged with embezzling $400,000 from the Seminole County Tax Collector's Office. That trial for Greenberg was slated to begin in June, but the plea deal may change all of that. And as a summary... Matt Gates himself continues to deny all these allegations. Now, Jessica, when I think about this, I think about that Law & Order show that everybody watched for so long. Is this one of those situations that a plea deal with Greenberg would be, you know, he walks or gets some kind of reduced sentence for cooperating in the investigation against Gates? Potentially. So Greenberg could agree to plea to, you know, X, Y, or Z, and in return provide information on Congressman Gates. Now, again, we don't know if that information exists. But yes, absolutely, this could be very bad news for Congressman Gates. We don't know. We will continue to follow the story. And Joe, I'm glad that you said throughout, you know, he's denied these allegations because we do want to be careful. Um, And look, people are innocent until proven guilty. And I think it's very fair to talk about these allegations. But uh, nothing has been proven um, even by a preponderance of the evidence at this point. So this brings us, I think, to a former member of Congress and our final update. You may remember former Congresswoman Katie Hill, a Democrat who was largely viewed as a rising star in California politics. Uh, Her rise to power really, frankly, had nothing on her spectacular fall and resignation from Congress. She resigned after intimate photographs of her were published online without her consent, including one image of her nude brushing the hair of a paid female campaign staffer and another of her uh, holding what looked to be a bong. Now, Jennifer Van Lahr, a former Republican political strategist and journalist, published these images Uh, of Hill on a conservative website called Red State. She then shared those images with a British tabloid called the Daily Mail. Von Lahr said that she got the images from a third party, but not from Hill's ex-husband. Hill sued Van Lahr, Red State, and the Daily Mail, among others, for violating a California law that prohibits the distribution of intimate photographs without consent. Joe, should we keep going? Yes, please do, Jessica. Now, I know that intimate photographs of Hill were in fact distributed, but I sense that you're about to say there's more to this story, or at least there is in the law. Yes, there are two specific defenses to liability in this law that may in fact be fatal to Hill's case, at least with respect to some of the defendants. So first, there's a specific defense for material that constitutes, quote, a matter of public concern. Now, some people might say, look, this is none of our business, but we interpret a matter of public concern broadly, in part because we have a really strong and robust First Amendment tradition. If you're talking about a member of Congress and what she did with a paid female campaign staffer or any a paid campaign staffer of any gender, and whether or not she is engaging in uh, using recreational drugs that are still illegal on the federal level, it's hard to see them falling outside of that rubric of matters of public concern. Now, second, there's also a defense for material that was previously distributed by another person. So if one person decides to distribute material and basically nobody looks, 
And then the next person distributes that same material and a whole host of people look, that second person might be off the hook, at least with respect to liability under this California statute. So this week, a trial court judge in California ruled that the Daily Mail did not violate California's revenge porn law. And this could be good news for Van Lahr and for Red State as well, because the Daily Mail, Van Lahr, and Red State all made similar arguments. So we should know pretty quickly what's going to continue to happen in this case. Again, an interesting matchup between privacy rights and First Amendment rights. And really, it's a matter of statutory interpretation. So we went through a lot of material. I think that's a wrap. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We really do love having these conversations with you. You can find the podcast on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod, on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, also on Instagram. And you can find Joe on the socials at In Depth Day. Jessica, I love having these conversations with you. I love sharing them with our listeners. Thanks to each and every one of them for our support. We do hope you drop by the places where you can find your podcast, wherever that is, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc. Rate us, review us, send us an email. We love hearing from all of you. Have a great day, everyone.